Well, it's good to be back with you again. Last time I, got, last time I came to speak to the men's group, I got a good breakfast, but there um, wasn't much time for breakfast this morning. Some years ago, I was able to invite to Oak Hill uh, Dr. Takunbo Adeyemo. Anyone heard of him? One of Africa's leading theologians, the editor of the African Bible Commentary, which is a commentary on the whole Bible, every book expounded by Africans. But when uh, he came to speak, he sadly has died since then. Not because he came to Oak Hill, but um, (coughs) he has sadly died. But he gave a talk, and I was looking at the PowerPoint that um, he gave on that occasion, and his title was, Is Africa Cursed? And in the course of that lecture, he talked about all the great advantages that Africa has. The supplies of minerals, the climate, the lack of large populations as other countries have, lack of that concentration of people with demands on resources. And he went through all the advantages there are in Africa. And then he went through the statistics of the poverty and the suffering of Africa. I couldn't see from the slides I have that he ever answered the question, is Africa cursed? But he came to one very clear conclusion. The problem in Africa, he says, is the lack of leadership. We had a generation of revolutionary pioneers, but we've never had that lesser, that, we've never had those people who are builders of a nation. We haven't had that blessing. Now, I'm sure it could be said of other countries that a similar thing has happened, that there are countries which God has supplied with magnificent resources. But they haven't realised the advantages of it because of a failure of leadership. Now, we have a passage about a failure of leadership. When God's people abandon him, leadership fails. That's the first 12 verses, I believe, of Isaiah chapter 3. And as always, it's probably good, it's good to see all these people with Bibles open in front of them to check that I haven't deviated from the truth. Isaiah speaks of the judgment of God coming to Israel. Not in terms of destruction from an external enemy, but the total collapse of all levels of political and social leadership. That great list of all the people who have failed right down to the local village area. If you want to put it in British terms, he'd talk about the Prime Minister and the Cabinet and the Chief of Police and he'd talk about the local councillors right down to the Stevenage councillors. And he said, there has been a failure, a failure of leadership. And it's not really surprising that this is what has happened in Israel. Israel was called upon to be the people. The people who revealed the true God to the world. 
They were called to restore those great principles that there were when creation happened, way before the fall in the Garden of Eden. That mankind was created to have a role under God in leading and developing the world. You remember that commission that was given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Cover the earth. Cultivate it. Transform the whole earth into the Garden of Eden. And this was the mandate that was given again to Israel. And God gave them wonderful leaders. Moses to lead them out of Egypt. Joshua to lead them into the promised land. King David. And then the splendor of King Solomon. When all the nations around wondered at the wisdom of the leader of Israel. And all these were men. Men who saw that their role was to act as those who knew God and knew his will and purposes. But then, after Solomon, and towards the end of Solomon's reign, the downturn begins. And with one or two splendid exceptions, after Solomon there are not great kings. Leadership declines in Israel. The books of Kings and Chronicles give us all the murky details. The ways they failed, not just as leaders, but failed in faithfulness to God. Many of them died violently. And their faithlessness was throughout the whole nation. People worshipped other gods. They rebelled against the Lord who had saved them, the Lord who had redeemed them. And now Isaiah talks about that whole declension coming home to roost. There are now no good leaders. Those who had become leaders were inadequate for the task. There were so few candidates for high office that anyone who had had better clothes than anyone else, people would go up and grab them and say, you've got a nice cloak, you must be a leader. You've got the robes, now do the job. Anyone got marial robes in their closet? You know, perhaps someone will come and grab hold of you and say, be mayor of... Do you have a mayor in Stevenage? Yes, you're mayor of Stevenage with nice robes? Oh, you don't know? Well, go, go, go and see if you can find them, Dave. Put them on one day. So, these people... He says, your children will be made leaders. Women will lead you. Now, this is a point at which I just want to be cautious and to caution you. It's very tempting, and as I was preparing this sermon, I had to warn myself not to get political. Not to pick out modern examples and say, there you are, just like so and so. And in particular, when it comes to the fact women shall lead you as being part of the judgment of God... I don't think we should apply it to Mrs. May. We shouldn't say Britain is under the curse of God because we have a woman prime minister. We must look at these verses in their context. 
Israel had male leadership. The only recent example of female leadership had been Queen... Uh, I have to get her name right. Queen Athaliah, who was a bit like Lady Macbeth. She killed all the royal family. She was a nasty piece of work. Women shall be your leader. If they looked back into the past of Israel, yes, they could see one or two great women leaders. Deborah, Jael. If we look forward from this period, we can think of Judith and the way she dealt with Holophanes. Wonderful opera made about it. But why were these women made leaders? Because of a failure of male leadership. So often a failure of proper leadership means that, as in Israel, inferior leadership comes in. Leadership in church and society is necessary. People who are not led properly are people who are given up to suffering. A departure from righteous living for a nation. Or gospel-centeredness for a church. Will come with poor leadership. It's a natural result of rebellion against God. People have forsaken the foundations. Politicians live without principles and become pragmatics pursuing any policy that will gain them popularity. I was quite pleased the number of P's I managed to get into that sentence. And in church, in church life it can become even more disastrous. When leaders are no longer governed by the word of God, but are just keeping a religious organisation ticking along and maybe serving their own ambitions. It's disastrous when leadership has gone. And God now brings his people into court. We're up to verse 13. We need to note that when God enters into judgment with his people, he doesn't begin with their lack of religious obedience. He concentrates upon the social injustice that is occurring in Israel. They are crushing people. They are grinding the faces of the poor. Now, if we are biblical Christians... We will not support policies that crush the poor and needy in our country. We will be concerned about those who are suffering in society. We will be concerned about the way in which our country treats refugees. The way it deals with those who aren't able to support themselves because of there may be their physical or their psychological condition. We will want there to be a truly caring society. Oh, it's encouraging to see things like uh, 
sports aid Friday night. See the generosity that comes from the British people. But such occasional actions are no good alternative to a country that really establishes a just and a fair society. Something that is just and fair, not just in words. And we have all the politicians talking about a just and fair society. And well, I mustn't start quoting them, I might miss someone out. But they all talk in the same sort of language. But where is the reality? And we pray for those other nations who struggle economically. We pray for countries in Africa, so many of them, praying that they might have leaders who will seek the well-being of their people rather than their own aggrandizement, rather than buying a new personal jet so they can get onto Dave's slide, rather than buying their own personal jet to say, what can I do to serve people? This is what God is attacking. He's attacking those who do not care for the poor and needy in society. And then God turns to the daughters of Zion. And I think our reader of this passage was beginning to enjoy that great description of the women of Zion. In the midst of poverty and injustice, they are concerned about their own adornments. And their sexual attractiveness. Their priority is themselves. And God pronounces a judgment on them. A judgment that will see all that they have gathered taken away from them. And a time of deprivation coming to them. Israel will be defeated in war. And so many men will be killed that the women will try to grab any available man. And you have this picture of seven women all trying to grab the same man. We'll we'll pay our own way, but please marry us. Desperate housewives indeed. Now, recognizing again that whenever we look at the text of Isaiah, it is God speaking to the people that he redeemed from slavery, who he made into a kingdom of priests to declare his glory to the nations, and that our nation does not have that same role in God's purposes. What lessons should come to us from this passage? We should be thinking about our personal priorities in life. Are we concerned for the poor? Are we in any way living like the women depicted here? I mustn't look around the congregation too. No, I think you're all all right. (laughs) Can't see any of the, can't see the anklets, can I? But there we are. Are we, Isaiah speaks of a coming judgment. Why is he speaking about judgment? It's a call to repentance. 
The sad part of the story of Isaiah will be revealed in a few weeks' time when you get to chapter 6. Isaiah is an interesting book in that his call doesn't come till it gets to chapter 6. And so you've got all this prophecy coming to you. And then we get his call. And there we have the sad news that Isaiah is going to be an unsuccessful preacher. People are not going to repent. That Israel that hears this word, that hears all this warning, their ears will be deaf to the voice of God. And they will be taken off into exile in Babylon. But for us, this call comes to us now. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as the Israelites do. And as we hear the word of God, we need to examine ourselves and ask whether any of the sins of these people are our sins and whether we need to become to repentance. And what of ourselves as a church? A church with a similar calling to Israel as the people of God. Are we being a light to the nations? Are we glorifying God in all that we do? With faithful ministry. That brings the word of God clearly to us week by week. Are we becoming people? The people that God wants in Stevenage today. We may give thanks that we are not deprived of leadership as the people of Isaiah's day were. But are we responding to the leadership that's being given to us with repentance and faithfulness? It's easy to read these Old Testament passages and think, oh, that's Israel. But it's us as well. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says all these things in the Old Testament happened as lessons for us today as Christian people. We have leadership. But are we responding to it as we should? The nice thing about Isaiah is he's not all negative. And we come now to the last part of our reading. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. The branch of the Lord will come. Now, whenever we read the Old Testament, and when we read through this book of Isaiah, we are faced with an unfinished story. We have the conundrum of a God who wants to bless Israel, and an Israel that keeps on rebelling against him. It's the tension of the book of Isaiah. Sin must be dealt with. Persistent sin will bring punishment. But our God is not a God who shuts people in prison and throws away the key. His purposes are to have a people for his own possession with whom he can dwell And that purpose will not be frustrated. There's this great picture throughout the scripture of a restoration of the Garden of Eden. Remember in that chapter 3 of the Garden of Eden, that lovely picture before we get to the 
revealing of the sin of Adam and Eve. When it says God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This lovely thought. Mediterranean climate. Days cooling down and there is God with his people. And here is the great vision throughout the Old Testament of God dwelling again with his people. But he can't dwell with them while sin is not dealt with. Well, you're going to have to wait until you get to Isaiah 53 to get the full story of how God deals with that. The way in which we can see how God can be just and the justifier of the unrighteous. But here we have the first indication. The first indication that God is going to act. Now elsewhere, when the prophets spoke about the coming Messiah, they often talked about him as the being the branch of the tree of Jesse, the branch of David, his human origin. But here we have this wonderful phrase, it's the branch of the Lord. God himself coming to redeem his people. And even as judgment rolls over Judah, there are survivors. There is a remnant. We've seen them back in verse 10. The innocents who will eat the fruit of their labors. They will be called the holy ones. They are given life. The filth of their sin is washed away. The Spirit's cleansing and the refining work will take place. God will dwell with his people, with the cloud and fire there, symbolizing his presence as it did when the tabernacle was established. But now the tabernacle is wide open. In the previous period, only priests could enter into the presence of God. But now for all the people... And there will be a marriage canopy over the nation. Israel will become the bride of the Lord. The seven women trying to get hold of one man to force him to become their husband. Now there is a much beautiful picture. Here is God as the husband of his people. And his people as his bride. And it's surely appropriate that we arrive here on Palm Sunday. Behold, your king comes to you, lowly and riding upon an ass. Here is our saviour coming to bring in his kingdom. As he deals with sin on the cross and gives new life to his people in his resurrection. And if we know not only Isaiah's prophecy... But also the reality in Christ Jesus. How we should rejoice that we have such a God. A God who does deal with our sin. A God who is full of mercy and grace. A God who will not bring us finally to the judgment that came to Israel. But rather will dwell with us. And we will dwell with him for all eternity. All praise to our Saviour God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Lord and our Father, we thank you for all your word. And we thank you that even as we think about the muddle of Israel and the mess of a life of rebellion, we are reminded of our Saviour and the wonder of your salvation. And we ask that in your mercy we will turn from sin and turn to Christ and may know what it is to live in fellowship with you now and for all eternity.